Hi, I'm Sam Barclay. Welcome to the Hidden Japan podcast. Have you ever wondered how Japanese knives are made? Do you know what it takes to be the apprentice of a craftsperson in Japan? On this episode, you'll find the answers to these questions as we delve into the experience of Eric Chevalier. Eric was an apprentice at the world-famous Sasuke Blacksmith Works. And here, he talks about his experience as an apprentice, his passion for blacksmithing and traditional craft, and the history of his now home, Sakai City. On this episode, we leave stereotypes behind. We're a million miles away from cat cafes and kawaii culture. Eric provides a lens onto a Japan that's hidden from most of us. Trust me, it's not to be missed. And just before we jump into today's story, I'd like to mention our sponsor, Hidden Japan Travel. Hidden Japan Travel provide private tours, outdoor adventures and cultural experiences on and around Shikoku. From cooking with locals and cycling to volcanoes, to wild camping and sea kayaking. They've got loads of one-day and multi-day options for you to leave Tokyo and Kyoto behind, to explore Shikoku and to truly see Japan differently. You can see more on their website, hiddenjapantravel.com. Okay, so let's crack on with today's instalment of the Hidden Japan podcast. So Eric, hi there, and welcome to the Hidden Japan podcast. Um, to start with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what it is you do in Japan? Uh, yes, so I'm Eric Chevalier. I'm French and I live in Japan. I was a blacksmith apprentice. Uh, I learned how to make traditional knives and traditional uh, bonsai scissors. And now I'm blacksmith uh, during my free time. And uh, my main activity is the promotion of the of tourism and industrial development of uh, Osaka on Sakai City. Fantastic. So it sounds really interesting that you made those those knives and the bonsai scissors, but you're also uh, working with Sakai City. And hopefully today we can talk a bit about uh, both of those uh, aspects of your life. So let's start with um, with Sakai then. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that city and its, its history and its, the importance of blacksmithing to Sakai? Sakai is already known all over the world for tea knife um, because uh, here we make uh, 80%, 80 or maybe 90% of all traditional Japanese knife. So usually uh, if you buy a knife, a traditional knife, a carbon steel knife in Tokyo, in Kyoto, in other city, usually they are make, made in Sakai. They are from Sakai. Even the seller is not from Sakai, the maker usually is uh, established in Sakai. Uh, so we make traditional knife here, so not many machines. Usually it's just one old guy in a dark place, <laughs> uh, like uh, like middle-aged movie, <laughs> like heroic movie. And the specialty of, of Sakai City, it's knife because uh, uh, 1,600 years ago, and we made a big emperor tumulus, emperor like a king, king tomb. Uh, and the, the, the bigger uh, tumulus, the bigger tomb, king tomb in the world, it's in Sakai. So many people think about pyramid in Egypt. But in fact, in Japan, in Sakai city, we have the, the, bigger, the biggest uh, 
uh, tomb. So to make this kind of really big place, big monument, uh, there is in the city and between Nara, uh, Nara city and Sakai city, we need uh, many craftsmen on many blacksmiths to make tools, uh, to, to, to dig and uh, to, to, to make the big monument. And there's blacksmith stayed in Sakai. So it's why we have this kind of blacksmith knowledge, really deep knowledge in, in Sakai city. And uh, during modern time, uh, this blacksmiths begin and start to make kitchen knife on weapon too, like on the bicycle. On. So everything uh, blacksmiths can make, we make it in Sakai. And now we make almost uh, almost kitchen knife for all over the world. Wow, that's really fast. I didn't know. I I, I know about the uh, the uh, the key shaped coffin in in. Uh, Sakai, you know, those burial mounds and, and how famous they are in Japan and, and all over the world. But I didn't know about the relationship between the, the burial mounds and, um, and the history of, of blacksmithing, which is just fascinating. So if we think about the, the kind of the blacksmithing tradition starting all of those years ago, um, how was it passed down from generation to generation? Yeah, it's a really difficult point. I think it's, uh, it's the same for all country, for each country. Um, because here, the problem of Sakai, it's, uh, it's really a big, big city. So maybe foreigners can't imagine because usually when we think about big city in Japan, we think just about Kyoto, but Tokyo, Kyoto, Nara, or Kobe. Uh, but in Japan, uh, each city are big, <laughs> so really difficult for a young guy, uh, for a young uh, apprentice to to make a new uh, a new workshop, a new forge. So usually many young people, when they finish the apprenticeship, they have to move outside Sakai because uh, because it's noisy, uh, it's dirty too. There is a lot of smoke, uh, so to don't disturb uh, neighbor and to don't have problem with neighbor and other people around. Uh, young people have to move in other city. So it's why uh, blacksmith in Sakai is pro- it's strongly uh, dec- decreasing. Mm. And usually the average age here uh, for great master, it's around maybe 60 years. It's, it's usually the younger, <laughs> great blacksmith, it's 60, uh, 60 years old. Mm. So it's pretty old. And we have maybe two or three uh, young blacksmiths, uh, but it's very difficult for them <laughs> to make business. Even we have internet, but it's hard to keep the good tradition on the handmade tradition because many big factory make many good and cheap Japanese knife. Yeah, good blacksmiths are strongly yes, uh, decreasing, yeah. Okay. But within that, you found your way to, to Sakai and you started to train as a blacksmith. Can you talk a bit about how you ended up becoming an apprentice blacksmith and, and a bit about your experience of that time? Yes, I think it's really different from many people because many foreigners and many Japanese uh, want to try and to be uh, apprentice. Uh, but me, no, no. I, when I came to Japan, it was to, to learn uh, Japanese language, uh, to come back to France and to have a good work, to, uh, to have a good job. <laughs> but my Japanese girlfriend uh, introduced me to a blacksmith in Sakai because uh, he, he planned to make an exhibition in France. So I helped him uh, just to make translation in French. 
So he, he make uh, like ta takoyaki party. Takoyaki, it's a, it's a food from, <laughs> from Osaka. He make this kind of party uh, with drink and sake after his exhibition. So I just translate uh, some few texts for him. And when he, when he came back uh, to Osaka, he invites me uh, just to drink together, to just say, uh, to tell me thanks for translation. Uh, but maybe because we drank too much, <laughs> we became friend. And uh, his workshop is really amazing. When you open the door, it's like middle age. He, when he asked me to just to, to help him, uh, I accept. I I had to accept. It's impolite. Impolite. Uh, it's not respect mm. um, because many people want to do this. So I tried and I really like the, the forging process and the forging work. So I stay here for five years. Finally, uh, <laughs> he asked me to stay because uh, Japanese traditional apprenticeship is five years. So you have, when you begin, you can give up, but uh, usually it's better to, to finish. So I finished my complete five years here. I'm really interested that um, you didn't go to Japan to become a blacksmith, but having been in Japan and met some people over there and uh, met the master blacksmith, you decided um, to be an apprentice for five years, which is, you know, a, a big chunk of time. And it's interesting that you're, maybe you didn't start out passionate about blacksmithing, but you developed that passion over time. Can you talk a bit about, you know, what your apprenticeship was like, what you did and and how that facilitated your, the development of your passion for, for blacksmithing? Uh, in fact, uh, my family was a big blacksmith family in France. Uh, okay. <laughs> even my, my, just my father, uh, my father did uh, another job, but uh, since uh, the seventeenth century, seventeenth uh, century, uh, my family was uh, blacksmith in in countryside of uh, in Bretagne, in Bretagne, mm -hmm. Britain, uh, in France. So maybe I think in my blood, uh, I have this, uh, this DNA, this blacksmith <laughs> DNA, this passion naturally. So when I see Sasuke work, I, I felt like my, my place is here. I have to make, uh, to, to use fire to make things and uh, to develop something uh, with my hands, uh, just to use fire on iron and steel. Uh, so I think it was really special for me to feel it because I never felt uh, so. I, I like blacksmiths and like maybe every man with <laughs> fire, we like it. It's, uh, but I felt it, yes, when I when I begin to work in, at Sasuke. So I, yes, of course, I developed my passion uh, for blacksmithing. I think um, my the, the traditional apprenticeship in Japan, it's, uh, yes, five years, uh, like I said. But uh, you don't have salary, you don't have money. So I just uh, earn for one month, if I talk in, in euro, uh, to 200 euro or 200 dollars, just for one month of work every day, no rest time. And I, work, uh, I worked uh, from 7 a.m. in the morning yeah, uh, to usually uh, 10 p.m. Mm. So all the day I work, I work, I work. Uh, but that does not work because uh, from from the morning to the night so to the evening, you work for the master because it's really traditional place. Uh, I had to clean the workshop, uh, 
to 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 wash the dish. So I was like, the the, the world is really strong uh, nowadays, but it's like like a slave, not like a slave. I, I would say because this this world is really strong in our society now. <laughs> Because I didn't uh, forge something all the day. I just see, I cut the charcoal, I cut many, uh, many steel bow. And just the night when the master finishes his work, when he come back at home and when he's eating his dinner, uh, I have to, to hurry up and to train myself, uh, maybe during two, three hours until I'm exhausted. Wow. <laughs> And, uh, usually we have uh, just one free <laughs> time, uh, one day, one day off. And this, uh, so it's a traditional way. Uh, many places uh, are changing the mind because it's not so traditional. But because my master is a really old mind <laughs> master, like movie. So that that's that's so interesting. One of one of our previous guests on the podcast uh, did a did a, an apprenticeship at a taiko group in uh, Kyushu and she kind of talked about the same the same kind of experience that she oh. um she had to wake up in the morning and make and make breakfast and clear the dishes and actually she imagined when she went into the apprenticeship that she'd be spending every day playing drums yeah. because that's what taiko players do but what she found is that the reality of the apprenticeship was very different so what what did you think going into the apprenticeship we were, were you aware that you would be waking up at 7 and going to bed at 10 and you'd be paid 200 euro and um get were, were you aware of all that and if so why did you but you did the apprenticeship anyway i'm interested in your kind of decision making around that everything is different and it depends on people but uh i think because it was really hard to finish this apprenticeship uh like your pr uh, previous guest uh, i think it's why we can develop uh many things with japanese because if I had an easy apprenticeship, Japanese didn't respect me like they respect me now. Uh, so I can do everything, in fact, now in Japan because they, they know I finished this apprenticeship and Japanese people know, oh, it's hard. Uh, so now they consider me like uh, Japanese, like them. Uh, so it's really, really unique. It's uh, really grateful for me. Uh, of course, if I had money or more free time, uh, maybe it was more relaxed. But maybe I stopped for to make something other uh, because it was hard. Uh, it was like a, I would say privilege, a privilege uh, to continue uh, because I know myself. If I finish this, I can be somebody else. <laughs> I can be someone else. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And there's always benefit, isn't there, in doing what's really difficult, I think, particularly in Japan and making relationships, the, the kind of the more, um, the more challenging the task, in some ways, as you say, the more the more respect you get from the community, when you complete that task. Yeah, I can totally appreciate that. Um, so thinking a little bit about that relationship then between the apprentice and the master, um, I know that in, in terms of blacksmithing, the skills are often or they were traditionally passed down from the parent to the child um, and it was kept within the family. So how do you think that that kind of parent-child relationship is reflected in the apprentice and master? Or is, is it reflected in, in, that, in that relationship? Uh, I think for me, my master is like my Japanese father. Uh, even we had many argue, uh, many problems together, of course, but like a family, like a father and a child, uh, we had deep discussion, deep talk. I think there is no difference between a foreigner apprentice, stranger Japanese apprentice, or family or son. 
in traditional way because actually uh, after I finished my apprenticeship uh, my master starts his own apprenticeship with my master <laughs> so he starts to uh, to learn blacksmithing with his father and he has the same problem than me and I think it was easier for me because I'm foreigners so I don't know he was maybe uh, kind with me because I'm foreigners so Naturally, Japanese thinks, uh, thinks uh, foreigners are uh, not so good, <laughs> I would say. Japanese are really hard workers. So it's maybe a stereotype, but many foreigners gave up uh, fastly. So my master wasn't, uh, wasn't too, too hard with me. And I talk a lot with his son. Uh, his son asked to me, uh, oh, did you finish this? It's too hard. Uh, even you are not the son, uh, if you have a good relationship with your master, if you respect him, uh, you have to respect him because he, he, he teaches you many things. Uh, if you do it, if you accept it, I think there is no difference uh, from of a son or from for your son guy. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm also interested in, in the extent to which you think that system can can continue because it seems to be quite an old system. I imagine quite a few kind of young Japanese might find it difficult to to live and train and work in that kind of environment. Uh, yes, normally uh, when you did when you do this kind of apprenticeship, uh, you have to live in the master house. So usually the master uh, don't pay you a lot, but you live with him and uh, he, he cook for you or you, you cook for him, but there is food. So you, you, so you, you live together, but nowadays many people prefer to live apart. Me, my master okay. just rent, uh, rent for me a small apartment. It was really fine. It's really small and, and old, um, but you have to just concentrate about the work. So you don't need to go out and to drink because you have just to work during these five years, the most important. And nowadays, many young people uh, start the apprenticeship really young uh, because uh, master uh, you, because you can't live with the masters nowadays because uh, the house are getting smaller and the masters live with family. It's different mind nowadays. So uh, usually, uh, young apprentices are uh, maybe he's uh, around fifteen or fourteen years old. So they leave, the apprentices live with them parents in the parents' uh, house and they, they work and they make the apprenticeship uh, close to the fam family uh, house, home. Uh, nowadays it's like this. So I think, yes, it's difficult uh, because you don't have money, but uh, in Japan, uh, governments and many people uh, really uh, give a big importance for traditional uh, skillship. Young people, maybe it's like a re revival. Uh, many people now, even it's hard, want to try uh, because there is many, uh, many ways to make money. So me, even I didn't get money a lot. Uh, after I finish, uh, after 10 p.m., I go to Osaka by bicycle and to give French lesson and to get money. <laughs> so you have many ways, in fact, to get money, uh, just a few money, but to eat. Uh, with internet, you can have a talk and teach something. If you are a foreigner, you can teach English or French. Uh, if you are Japanese, you can do something. The night, there is uh, uh, 24 hours, a combini convenience store. You can work the night too. So if you need money, if you want to do, you can get money maybe uh, more easier, uh, e more easier than before and than uh, all the time. So maybe I think easier yeah. now 
than uh, in the old time to get money and to continue uh, to get the motivation. Yeah, and I guess that speaks to what you were saying before of of the apprenticeship being a privilege, and it's it's a period that you're, you you mm-hmm. of your training, and um, and so you can earn money in other ways to support that support that education. I suppose I'm interested in you talked about kind of the preservation of of traditional craft, and I suppose blacksmithing is one traditional craft in Japan. Um, what do you think about the preservation of that kind of the apprenticeship tradition? Should that be preserved as well? About the apprenticeship, yeah. Uh, yes, no things are changing because um, maybe it's not so useful to be so strict with apprentice and uh, because people don't have time. Uh, no, they have to learn and after two or three years, they have to be able to make something. The world actually moves really fast. So many traditional or old masters uh, are changing the mind and teach, uh, teach, give money, try to give money and, to, it, and teach directly uh, on the day to the apprentice. So me, my place, it was really, uh, really special. Your previous guest in Taiko world uh, was, uh, may, maybe it's really particular too. Uh, there was just a few places like this in Japan. I think it's not so hard for many apprentices. The things are changing, yeah. So it sounds to me that you're, you're really interested in traditional craft and craftsmanship um, and obviously blacksmithing is, is part of that. So where do you think that sense of tradition comes from? Why, do you, why is a sense of tradition important to you? I think if you don't know your roots, if you don't know your past, uh, you can't build your, your future. Particularly nowadays, we have many movements in America and in Europe too. They try to, to, to cancel. It's like a cancel culture. But a, a culture, it's like when you, you make uh, some food, you are, the culture, it's, it's the same words for our culture, heritage, and uh, a food when you make something. So if you don't have roots, if you don't have a, a, a good ground <laughs> to, to make vegetables, for example, you can grow and you, can, you, you can't make food. And it's the same for us. Uh, if, we, if we cancel every time uh, the past, even it's bad, uh, we we forget we forget uh, who we are. Uh, so it's the same for tradition. We have to to preserve the tradition to to go uh, and to see the future. Of course, we you don't have to to think just about the past, the past every time. But we have to use the past to build ourselves and to to pass to to pass this tradition to uh, to our child. Uh, so I think in Japan we we don't have this kind of cancel culture uh, nowadays because Japanese know uh, it's very important to, to preserve and to protect your roots, even if it's bad or good, but to make the future. So it's the same for tradition. You have to protect it. Yeah. Mm. The difficult thing is that often the traditional way is also harder. That, as you say, these days there are lots of kind of modern knife companies and maybe the quality of knife isn't as good as the, as the ones that are handcrafted, but the, they can be produced much more quickly and perhaps less expensively. But e- even given that, preserving traditional culture is still really important. It's, yes, it's easy to cancel. It's easy to erase, erase something. You take an eraser, eraser and you, you cancel something. So I think nowadays people are just are too easy mind. Uh, they are lazy, I think, because tradition, you have to protect it and to change it. So you, you don't erase it, you don't cancel it. 
you know the past it's like this the, story, the old traditional uh, age uh, i would say uh, 100 years ago we made things like this because it was high quality and now with our uh, knowledge and with our uh, technology we continue to 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 use this past tradition and to to make uh, good things so like you say just mm. you you pass uh, <laughs> the tradition to something this link it's important if you cut the link you fall um, if people cut the link, the next generation will fall in some crazy world. <laughs> My opinion. Yeah, once you stop, you, it's so difficult to start again, isn't it? Sometimes mm. the most important thing is just preserving it because as soon as yeah, as soon as it's it's paused, it's very difficult to restart. I, yeah, I yeah, restart is difficult. So yes, many people have to take care about this. Restart something is really hard. The better is to protect it, just to think about it and change a few, but not erase, not begin after. Uh, from zero start something from zero it's pretty hard so i'm afraid about it yeah absolutely so let's think about yeah. the, the the knives that you you made and this and the bonsai scissors so i suppose they're like an everyday product that people can use at home but there are other knives that people can buy so i suppose those knives and those scissors have special significance for the people who who buy them the people who own them and in that sense they almost become like a work of art as well as a product is that fair to say for bonsai on gardener scissors, uh, my master is the last uh, homemade maker uh, in Japan. Uh, so each piece are really expensive. He make gold inlaid uh, uh, scissors, maybe the most expensive scissors uh, in the world. <laughs> there is many video on YouTube about it, but but the quality is so high you can use it for 200 years. Some people came to our workshop and say it's from my grandfather if i sharp it again can i use it yes you can use it after maybe 50 years or, or 100 years it's okay so it's really wow. special uh, tools this is about scissors on knife because it's all handmade knife we don't make big quantity usually we make one or two knife a day and for one scissors uh, mm. we need Five, four or five days to make one scissors. It's really hard. Uh, it's all handmade. Wow. When people buy it, it of course, it's just more expensive than usual industrial things. But industrial uh, tools, you, you buy it, you are happy because it's cheap, but you use it and after 10 years or less, <laughs> you have to buy another and buy another. So at last, you have maybe five mm -hmm. or six bad tools cheap at, uh, at the beginning at start but in fact it's the same price it's better to buy good tools and to use it uh, there is a history in in the, the, the tool and you can give it to your son or to your daughter sasuke has made yeah mm -hmm. uh, me myself too because it's no machine all handmade uh, it's very special tool um there is an all-purpose knife for, uh, you can use at home, but here, uh, we make, of course, special sushi chef knife for sashimi, for, sashimi, for sushi, for fish, uh, for fisherman, uh, for meat, uh, or just for vegetables. There is many different types of knife in Japan, just for noodles, just for, uh, we call it daikon. It's radish, maybe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so... For one, for one thing, one element, we have one knife in Japan. So we have a really many, many complete <laughs> uh, choice, yeah. And I, I suppose it's it's quite inspiring as well. Like, 
if you pick up a product, if you're using a product that you know has been handcrafted and you know that somebody has dedicated 12, 14 hours to the production of that one knife that you are holding in your hand, it inspires you to want to produce good food, to want to do a good product yourself and to and to kind of utilize all the work that's been put into that into that knife uh, so yes when we sell it and when people came we have to explain about all the process of of, mm. of making this tool usually people understand that and they, they, they buy the knife because they know about the history and about the making so when we're thinking about pro process then eric could you tell us a little bit just briefly tell us about the process of blacksmithing a, a japanese knife uh, for Japanese knife, yeah, we use um, two different uh, type of material uh, for the base. We use, uh, we call it soft steel, uh, like iron. It's a uh, uh, low carbon, low carbon steel and high carbon steel. We use two material and we mix it together. Uh, so we have okay. two layers. We have every time two or three layers. Uh, one soft material and one hard material. The hard part of the knife is for the edge. If all the knife is hard, it can't break. It can break if you if you don't take care about it, and it's really hard to mm. start. So it's why we mix two different uh, material: a soft, uh, a soft steel and a hard steel. And it depends on what kind of knife you use. So sometimes we have two layers for sashimi knife for special professional knife. Uh, for all uh, for all purpose or western style knife we use three layers so in your mind you can think about um about a sandwich <laughs> <laughs> so the, the bread is the soft part and the the ham or the salad the tomato inside it's the hard part because mm -hmm. it's the edge uh, so we mix it and after we put it yeah we put it in the fire uh Many times we, we, we beat it with the hammer to make it long and to, uh, to, to make the, the, the knife shape. Uh, this is the blacksmith mm -hmm. part because uh, for traditional way to make a knife in Sakai, uh, we have uh, five different makers just for one knife. So usually people don't wow. know that. <laughs> Me, I'm blacksmith, so I just forge. Me, I use the fire on the steel, just that, that's all. And after I finish the shape of the knife, I give it to a mm. sharpener. So the sharpener, it's different atelier, different workshop. He use a big, call it wet stone. He use water stone, sharp the knife. Uh, and after he finish it, uh, there is a handle maker. Just he make handle uh, from the morning to the night, handle mm. maker. And so this is the third, uh, the third one. And after you have the seller. So almost all of big brand, famous name, uh, Japanese knife name on in the world, it's not blacksmith, it's not uh, sharpener, uh, just few one only. But uh, usually it's just um, just big brand, mm -hmm. and uh, this brand uh, work is uh, to 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 sell the knife. I see. I had no idea that so many people were involved in the process. That's that you'd have a different sharpener. I actually noticed on your um, on some of the knives I've looked at online, they'll have the name of the maker, but also the name of the sharpener is written alongside the knife. Uh, yes, I, I try. In fact, I, I make this website at first uh, just to make the promotion of small maker. Uh, they don't, they can't sell directly. It's very difficult to buy directly uh, to a craftsman in Japan. Mm. 
usually you have to go to a shop to a seller so in sakai we have a, a museum the sakai knife museum and the craftsman can sell directly they have a small small corner and they can sell so you if you want the nomura or ikeda blacksmith uh, blade you you go there and you have the ikeda corner and you can buy it. ikeda it's one of the most famous it's why i use this name <laughs> uh, but um, many people can they can't come again uh, to the museum asks me uh, they want to buy directly from the craftsman and it's really impossible and even you ask to a seller they don't help you oh, wow. uh, so because i get my money from sakai city because i work for the, the sakai city government i don't live just uh, from uh, from my website so my website is just passion to help mm. uh, to help a blacksmith and to sell just my own production so it's why on the website it's right uh, who is a blacksmith who is a sharpener and if people sell uh, ask to me i can say who makes the handle yeah. mm. <laughs> uh, so yes me i make the, this website and for, for this because many customers want to know who makes the knife they don't care about the brand <laughs> yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense so so eric what what kind of what does the future hold for you and sakai and and for for blacksmithing do you think and things are really changing for in a good way uh, for example in sakai we make many events uh, we make many promotion for for uh, sharpener for blacksmith so i think after maybe some years foreigners and tourists coming here could enjoy more sakai because now it's pretty uh, close uh, it's really private world if you want to to visit a blacksmith it's really difficult because they don't want to to welcome somebody and uh, they don't want i would say to be famous, in fact, <laughs> because it's very Japanese and it's very Japanese. They don't want to, I would say, to be too famous, sure. to don't to don't disturb uh, other other blacksmiths, other uh, craftsmen. Sakai is, I think, uh, will be more clean. Uh, many new things, uh, uh, many new building, uh, many new activity. Uh, uh, so it's changing in a really good way. Uh, not just only Sakai, all Osaka area. It's very amazing. Uh, nowadays mm. uh, pretty good on about me yes me i i'm still looking for for old place really uh, like not romantic but really 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 <laughs> cute old spots to continue to make knife and to show to people how to make knife yeah. in a traditional, traditional way and i continue to make uh, my work of advisor for Osaka. My, my own goal is to go height and to make the promotion of old Kansai because there is many, many small cities, small makers, small craftsmen. Uh, they need the promotion. Mm. So I think um, I hope uh, I could continue like this. Yeah. Uh, it sounds fantastic. I mean, those are the cities that that really need to be supported. Those are the, the locations that need to be supported. As you know, Japan has uh, an issue with depopulation. Yeah, the pop the the size of the country is shrinking, but what it also has is an increase in urbanization. More and more people are moving to the cities. And that means all, a lot of those spots, a lot of those perhaps more rural communities are, are in real, real danger. And a lot, of, a lot of the culture that exists there is just going to cease to exist unless, unless we, do something, we do something to help it. So it sounds fantastic um, what, you, what you're doing to, to support that, Eric. Just finally, um, thinking back to your apprenticeship, when you worked from seven to 10 o'clock in the evening and you were dedicated, you know, you had six days a week doing it. You didn't, you were in front of the fire probably most of the day. Do you, do you miss those times? 
Yeah, it's like nostalgic. It's amazing because now I have com comfortable uh, life. But uh, when I think about it, it's, it's, it's really amazing. I want to, to go back just uh, to this uh, hard time. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very nostalgic because it was hard, but it was so special. Uh, you think about nothing, just you wake up, you work, uh, you are dirty, you think just about it. It's really relaxed for the brain. <laughs> because no, I have to think about many things. Uh, when I was apprentice, I don't think about money because money don't move. Uh, I have this uh, this money every month. I, I can't do something <laughs> to to get more, just a few. So I, uh, I when you don't have a lot of money, you don't think about uh, to to buy a lot of food. You don't think about to go restaurant or to drink because you can't. Uh, so the first month, of course. It's hard, but after uh, some years, uh, you are used to, to live simply on this really simple life. It's really good, really relaxed for the, for the brain, for the mind, and for the body too, because you feel good. You really feel good. Yeah? No corruption. <laughs> yeah, couldn't agree more. So where, where can our listeners find out more information about you and your work? Uh, usually if you look for French in Sakai <laughs> or French blacksmith uh, Japan, usually you find me easily because uh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the only one now. Uh, I, usually I work at the Sakai Knife Museum. It's a Sakai traditional craft uh, museum. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you, if you go to Sakai, you can visit me here or on internet. If you look for my name, you can find me easily. Um, I have my own brand. It's a uh, my French accent, sorry, everybody, but do Sakai. Uh, so do Sakai, it's, in French, it's, uh, I mean, from Sakai. Mm -hmm. uh, so E on Sakai, S-A-K-A-I. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it is my own website. I make the promotion of uh, Maker and I sell my own my own my own stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll be sure to check that out. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk through your incredible story and to discuss kind of tradition and traditional craft and and uh, and the city of Sakai. It was a really interesting conversation. So so thank you so much. Thank you, Sam, to give us uh, the opportunity oh. <laughs> to to about our work yeah. absolutely my pleasure okay thank you i know i say this on every episode but what a fascinating conversation what an extraordinary insight into an incredible life i mean i had heard of sakai city i think it's where the kansai international airport is and i know it because of the burial mounds but from now on whenever i think of kansai whenever i think of sakai city i'll associate it with Eric Chevalier and his extraordinary experience as a blacksmith there. I was taking notes feverishly during my interview with Eric, and there are a few points I'd like to discuss to finish today's episode. Firstly, I was struck by how Eric clearly had to work really hard during his apprenticeship, how it was not easy, it was challenging, and it was stressful. But because of that, he's able to earn respect within the local community, and because of that, he has the position he currently does. I mean, we often hear of communities treating some people as outsiders. But what got me about Eric's story is that not for one second did he act in an entitled manner. Not for one minute did he think that the community should change to accommodate him. And I think it's that more than anything that's helped him earn the respect that he clearly obviously has within that local community. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, it was Eric's attitude towards tradition and traditional craft. I think he's absolutely right. 
it's so important to preserve these traditional art forms because once they're gone, there really isn't any way to get them back. I was really interested to learn that Eric is working with other communities trying to show off the cultural assets that exist throughout Japan. And that's also something that our sponsor, Hidden Japan Travel, are passionate about. They work in rural locations with small communities, helping preserve cultural art forms and ways of life. So if you'd like to see the tools that they offer and the experiences they can provide, please check out their website, hiddenjapantravel.com. So that was my takeaway from today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope it's given you food for thought. And and please look Eric up online. His website is de, D-E, Sakai, S-A-K-A-I. And of course, if you're ever passing through that part of the world, please stop by his museum and say hi. So that's all for today's episode, and I'll see you next time on the Hidden Japan podcast. Domo, arigatou gozaimashita. Thank you.